Welcome to a new season of We Are Carbon. I'm Helen Fisher and I'm joined by Tony Ronaldo for a discussion that's as much about regenerating hope as regenerating the land. Now, I never quite planned to have such a long break between episodes, which is why I'm calling this season two. And you can now expect a new one every other week for the foreseeable future. So don't forget to subscribe. Our last episode brought together many of the previous guests for a story underlining a growing clarity of the role of soil health and microbes within the wider picture of our ability to regenerate the land, the climate and also human health. It's all so very much connected and as the buzz and appreciation of this knowledge deepens in a whole variety of projects across the globe, I felt a pull to further explore how this snowball is finally gaining traction for these understandings to start taking meaning within our day-to-day lives. I've been busy delving into this in a number of ways, and one initiative that I'm in the very early stages of forming is Know Your Food. I'm designing it to bring together stakeholders involved in local and regenerative food systems worldwide in a collaborative effort to build public awareness about the power in our food choices. If it sounds relevant to you, then please do take a few minutes to look through the link in the description where you'll find more information and a survey that will be a huge help to me if you could fill it in. This new season will be building upon the regenerative story to look at the dynamics within our societies and consider in what ways new relationships are being developed for assisting a move to a more healthy world. We'll dip into everything from the role of community business structures, our systems of money, food and education and keep up to date with the role of nature amongst all of this. In this episode, Tony brings us a beautiful tie-in with an inspirational story that underlines the role of human motivation and hope in bringing regeneration to the lands around us. At a young age, Tony was inspired to uproot from his homeland of Australia to carry out missionary work in Africa. His efforts to reforest vast areas despite repeated setbacks demonstrated how strongly he believed that reversing the destruction of nature was the answer to turning the tide on the devastating struggles and poverty that surrounded him. The work was pretty thankless, but it took a complete U-turn when Tony made a discovery that a simple solution had been laying there the whole time. A discovery that made successful land restoration possible at very low cost and assisted farmers in becoming self-sufficient. In the decades since, Tony's work has contributed to the reforesting of over 6 million hectares and attracted him numerous awards. It's a great pleasure to have been able to speak with him. So with all that said, let's get stuck in. So hello Tony, thank you for joining me today. It's a great pleasure to speak with you. And uh, we're talking about FMNR, which is something that we're going to go into detail later in the discussion about what that is. But essentially, it's about regeneration of the natural world and nature's ability to regenerate and self-heal. It's also about your incredible life, which seems to have never quite been average. Even um, as a child, you were very, very driven, it seemed. Um, I've recently read your autobiography, um, which is how I've got this insight into this child that just wanted to change the world, um, to help all of these issues. So I wonder if we could start out by maybe you introducing the young Tony. How, how, how did 
you as a child, how did the world come across to you and what was it that you felt driven to change? Sure. So first of all, thank you, Helen. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you. And I, I guess I was a little bit of a strange child. I, I always had a love for trees and nature. And there were probably three significant things that shaped me then and even to this day. So I, I loved the natural environment. In, in Australia, we call it the bush. And I grew up in a lovely part of the country in northeast Victoria. So I, I walked over many of the hills close to home and climbed some of the trees. I swam in the mountain streams and fished there. And yet there's terrible destruction going on. The farming practices, they were spraying chemicals like DDT from aeroplanes and that, that drifted into the rivers, sometimes killing the fish. But th this was the water we were drinking and swimming in, being poisoned. And there was terrible clearing of the bushland on steep hills. And these hills would be left fallow for several years on end. And as a child, I didn't understand ecology. I, I didn't know the, the science of it, but it didn't add up to me. The erosion, the loss of biodiversity, uh, the, the extra flooding in the creeks and so on. I, I wondered about the adult world and what their values were and was making money really worth the effort if you had to destroy the environment, our future, really our life support system, what, what were the values driving this? It didn't add up. And the second thing was, while in our valleys close to the town I grew up in, tobacco was the main crop. So this weed, really, that in the end made people sick and in the process of growing it polluted the earth, we were growing tobacco. And yet children just like me, who through no fault of their own happened to be born elsewhere, were going to bed hungry. And again, I was very frustrated. <laughs> what were the adult world thinking that we could even do this? Why, why not grow food? But as a child, I felt powerless and um, yeah, frustrated. What, what did I do? What voice did I have? And I, I wasn't very articulate either at that age. <laughs> and so the, the third thing that impacted me, I was very influenced by my mum's faith. And that gave me a framework for living that there was much more in life, to life, than financial security, that there are other values to live by, that uh, we did have a responsibility for those less fortunate than ourselves, and that we, we were meant to be stewards, carers of the environment. Yes, use it, yes, benefit from it, but look after it at the same time. So yeah, it was, it was an interesting childhood. <laughs> Yeah, it sounds like you just were very switched on to the connection between the actions that the human impact was having on the ecology. I think a lot of people just, it is just the way it is, and we just kind of go through life and um, we're surrounded by these problems but aren't connecting the dots. And it seems like even as a child, that was very clear to you, you know, the chemicals led to killing of fish in the river and um, I think that that must have been a big driving force because you made some very brave and very bold decisions about the direction of your life. Um, I would say, uh, sort of, as a young um, family, you moved to work in a missionary in Niger, which it must have been quite a big decision um, to, to take and obviously very eye-opening for you all. 
Yes, yes. I, I forgot to say that as a child too, in that frustration, what, what could I do? I did the one thing that I felt I did have power over and I, I threw up a child's prayer, simply asking God to use me somehow, somewhere to make a difference. And um, that's that's been a driving factor in my life, trying to be true to that child's prayer. When we did end up landing in Niger and uh, my wife and I had both studied agriculture so we're f almost fresh out of university very naive very inexperienced to be confronted by this landscape so degraded so devastated I, I believe it was on the point of ecological collapse it was barely able to support life on earth anymore and yet in my lifetime and we were in our early 20s then in the 1981 in my lifetime, this had been a dry land, biodiverse forest with some wildlife, giraffes, monkeys, wild boar, a patchwork of farms in between that dry land forest, in certain areas, springs that were reliable and relatively fertile soil. And it had been reduced to this almost totally barren, windswept landscape. So it was devastated. And, and the impact, we didn't realize at that time that climate change was a factor, but it was, the whole West Africa region has experienced a 25% step down in average rainfall. We didn't know that. What I did know was that deforestation was a major factor. And as population grew, as pressure for more farmland increased and people needed to feed their families, the normal practice was to clear the remaining forest and turn that into farmland. So it, it was devastating. We experienced increased severity and frequency of drought. Wind speeds with no tree obstruction could reach 70 to 80 uh, kilometers per hour, picking up sand and blasting the little crops as they emerged or burying them outright. And in very bad years, farmers would have to plant and replant and replant, even the extreme case, even up to eight times. And it's not as if they had a magic pot of seed. This was their food supply. So each additional planting was that much less food for the family. And it also meant you were that much later into the rainy season, which didn't extend just because you happened to be late. So pe people in a very hard situation, soil surface temperatures could exceed 60 degrees Celsius. So it was like an oven very hostile environment for germinating crops. And then perversely, even when it did rain, because there was no biodiversity, there were no checks and balances, natural predators, insect eating birds, spiders, lizards, there's no habitat. So they'd all left. In the good years, <laughs> you could have explosions of pest outbreaks. So um, locusts, caterpillars, sucking insects, so even when it rained, there's still no guarantee of getting food. So people people suffered. It was it was harsh. It was an eye opener for our uh, us young university graduates. Yeah, I can quite imagine it must have been very surreal at times. The the level of suffering um, because it's one thing to experience it on a TV screen and feel somewhat detached, but to to actually go there and live and have that surrounding you, that community suffering in poverty because the land is degraded and I suppose the connection was just very black and white the land itself had um, 
nothing to give and no ability to sustain and look after itself. So the people, therefore, could not look after themselves. And I think what you've said there about it being actually quite lush and filled with springs during the lifetime that you've lived, that that I think, I don't know whether this is an ignorant point of view from me, but I don't think many people are aware of that contrast and how quick that degradation happened um, and the impact that that was having on people's lives. It obviously hadn't always been that way. So Yes, so, so I, I wouldn't necessarily describe it as lush, but having trees in the landscape made the difference. It made it livable. It kept, it maintained the soil fertility. It created a microclimate that was more conducive to plant and animal growth and a more pleasant place to live in, uh, lower wind speeds, lower temperatures. So it, it was always a harsh environment, but it was more livable when the environment was more or less intact. Yes. Okay. Thank you. It's... um. It's hard to imagine, I, I suppose, the um, the way that you must have felt going there. You clearly went with a, a drive to make change and, and you were there. It must have been very much overwhelming. The work well, you, that you, you did, sorry. Oh, sorry. You, you touched on a, a very interesting point there. When I was a child and I saw this sort of thing on TV, I didn't relate. They weren't people known to me. It was remote and you could just as easily, while you're emotionally touched by suffering, you could turn that TV off and go to the fridge. When I actually lived there and I ate in their huts, I was a, a, a beneficiary of their hospitality and we became friends and you knew their families and their struggles and their joys. This was very different. And, and at that point, the battle became personal. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I can imagine what an incredible change that must have been. In terms of the work, you were focused on reforestation um, when when you arrived. Was that something that you truly believed right from the off, that establishing trees would be the answer to so many of the problems? Yes, so it also harps back to my childhood. I, I really was a strange child, and I remember every weekend, every Sunday, we would drive to the nearest city where my grandparents lived and there was a certain point where you came emerged from the bush and the trees literally came to the edge of the road close to where I lived and there was a rise and then the country opened out and then bang this bald mountain range hit you in the eyes and I was just a little kid in the back seat of the car but in my mind's eye I was up on those hills gumboots on and shovel in hand planting trees it just wasn't right and I, I knew, yes, you needed to clear a certain amount to grow livestock and crops and so on. But did they have to take every tree out and then transfer that mentality to Niger where I, I could see and, and the, the science backed it. Uh, viable agriculture was not possible in that climate without some level of tree cover, the wind speeds, the high temperatures the loss of soil fertility meant it, it just made sense. You had to have trees and, and the right kind of trees in there to, to create the, the fertility and the microclimate necessary for, for sustainable agriculture. So it, it was very clear when we got there. 
Yes, it just struck you there, there was something missing from this landscape. <laughs> yes, and, 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 and quickly come to the conclusion, if deforestation was one of the root causes of all these problems people are going through, then surely reforestation must be a big part of the solution. Yeah, absolutely. And it was not an easy task. It, it seems that before you discovered FMNR, which was a later kind of, um, I suppose, a solution to how challenging the actual task of establishing the trees was. It was not in any way um, easy. So could you maybe explain some of the challenges of that? Well, if if Murphy's Law ever applied, if anything could go wrong, it will, <laughs> then it applies here. I don't know if you're familiar with Murphy's Law, but everything conceivable and inconceivable. So here we are. Uh, if you can picture in this barren landscape, brown all around as far as the eye can see, and you create a tree nursery. So you've got this oasis of green in a sea of brown. So every critter imaginable is going to be attracted to this greenery. Even where did they come from? Desert frogs, or I guess they might have been toads. They come up out of the ground and they would squat on this lovely moist pot that you had planted a seedling in a seed in <laughs> and and they would wriggle around get comfortable in there all the while destroying destroying that seedling as it emerged birds would come there no no other greenery around they would peck at the seedlings as they emerged if there were grasshoppers in a particular year that you were doing this work of course they would be attracted to it too and, and then even attack from under the ground so we grew the seedlings in polythene bags, black plastic bags. And some years, for whatever reason, the termites decided that this was good food and they would devour the pot. And, and when you would go to move the seedling to plant it, the, the, the uh, dirt around the root ball would just fall off and lessen the chances of survival. So even before you got out of the nursery, it was, it was war, World War Three. Then you had to transport these poor things and they'd get shaken up and a little bit of shock in the transport. There would be a need to dig the holes and plant them out. Uh, if you could access water, and this wasn't very easy, the water table could be 40 to 100 metres deep and no pumps. It'd all have to be drawn by hand and carted out to the site. So what, what you tried to do was plant immediately after a big rain. So there's moisture in the soil. If you could put water on it as well, good, all the better. Then these little struggling seedlings, and they're just maybe 20 centimetres tall with this tiny root ball, they're going to be subject to those high temperatures, 60 degrees Celsius temperature, 70 kilometre per hour winds, and too often droughts. It just simply didn't, you didn't get a follow-up rain. It was expensive. It had a very low success rate, maybe in excess of 80% of the plants put out would die. There were wandering goats. <laughs> and and all, all that was bad enough. But if you threw enough money and effort and technology, you, you could still have a degree of success. But the real clincher was people's attitudes. Um, they believed that if, if I planted a tree in my lifetime, I wouldn't benefit. Uh, they believe that if I plant trees on my valuable farmland, these trees would shade and compete with my crops. And here I am hungry, 
what's this crazy white farmer trying to do to us? And they, they did literally call me the crazy white farmer. They were very um, aware that an unprotected tree could easily be stolen. So there, there was no sense of ownership. The culture was their, their forefathers had tamed the bush and the bush was endless. Anybody who wanted to cut a tree for firewood or other uses more or less had the right. It, maybe you would ask, maybe you wouldn't, but it wasn't a big deal. But with, with these trees, farmers were very aware that the likelihood of them uh, s remaining standing until maturity was very, very low. So it was a battle. Yes, it sounds. I, I mean, I can imagine every one of those on their own, every point that you've just said, just individually would have been enough to cause problems, but combine them all together and you really are going against the tide. Um, <laughs> you, you're actually sort of fighting people and fighting nature and uh, <laughs> or, or they're sort of fighting against your desire and um, the impact that you're trying to make. So yes, this must have been fairly exhausting at times or very exhausting, um, particularly when we consider these people. I imagine they're already quite drained from the life of just trying to establish the food that they need to eat. So to look after trees that they're not really feeling motivated or understanding why they'd want to do that, that's, that, that's a big... Uh, it's a big drag for you. Yeah, and, and I think when, when you're young, you're particularly ambitious. You want to have an impact and you, you believe, very naively, you believe you're going to do this thing <laughs> and it's just not happening. So I was quite discouraged at, at different points. It would have been quite easy to give up and go home. It appeared to me, and I, I think it's true, I, it was a big waste of time and money. I knew with these methods, uh, under these conditions, I would never have a significant dent on on the scale of the problem. So it's very, very discouraging. Yeah, I can quite imagine. And uh, you were up against some very harsh conditions yourself that you were not necessarily uh, used to living in. So it, it it really does come across that you you call it naivety, and I think that that is uh, a, a a big power that we have when we're young. You know that that naive ambition actually is is necessary at times, isn't it? Or we just wouldn't um, stumble across what. You know, moving forward at the, you know, looking at how you progressed, you would not have taken the steps if you hadn't I, had that that drive and that um, naivety to begin with, and gone through what wasn't working. Um, I, I I'm thankful to God that He did, doesn't reveal all that's ahead of us in one <laughs> bank because you wouldn't attempt it. And also, I, I think there was this belief that th there must be a solution um, and, and the alternative so dire. If you do nothing, if you don't address this, then things are only going to get worse for people. So th there was a stubbornness and probably a little bit of pride. I, di I didn't really want to go home as a failure. <laughs> of course. Um, and you didn't. You absolutely didn't. I mean, you had this moment of clarity one day and that changed everything and that led to what you now um, refer to as FMNR. Um, could you explain what, what you saw and, and the, what, what that turned into in terms of a new method for reforestation? C certainly. So, so one day I was driving a, a vehicle load of tree seedlings to the villages 
And by this stage, I'd been doing this, I'd been visiting the villages for about two and a half years, so almost every week. And I was quite discouraged. It was one of those low days when I really could have gone home. And I, I stopped the vehicle. The tracks, they're very sandy. And you need to reduce the air pressure, otherwise the vehicle get bogged. And so I'm, I'm letting the air pressure down and, and peering over the, the front of the vehicle in every direction. It's barren, north, south, east, west. And, and the, the tickers ticking over, how many million dollars would it take? How many decades? How many hundred staff? would you need using these methods to impact this landscape? And of course, the answer is it's, it's not going to happen. No, nobody's going to fund that kind of effort for such a high failure rate. But I, I did feel that I was meant to be there, that, that there was a solution. And, and it's another one of those times in my life where I, I threw up a prayer of desperation. You know, I would read widely. I consulted the experts on what to do. I'd experimented with different methods. Nothing was working in an economically viable or sustainable or satisfying way. So the, the last resort, which probably from my framework should have been the first, prayer. And so I first of all, ask God, forgive us for destroying the gift of your creation. And as a consequence of that, people are suffering. They're, they're hungry. They're fearful for tomorrow. They don't know what it'll bring. But you still love us for your children. Help us. Show us what to do. Open our eyes. So a simple but very sincere prayer. And the strange thing is, even though I'd been on this track for two and a half years, very, very frequently, on this particular day, I saw something in a different light for the first time. And this bush, what I thought was a desert bush, caught my attention. And I, I took the trouble to walk over and take a closer look and while there weren't a lot of trees in the landscape, the ones that were there, I knew them. I knew the species name. I knew their characteristics and so on. Immediately, when I saw the shape of the leaf on what I thought was a bush, everything changed. The leaf is like a signature. It tells you what species that is. It's not a bush. It's not a weed. This is a tree. And you brush that sand away, you can see the stub. It's been cut down and it's re-sprouting. And in that instant, everything changed. I wasn't fighting the Sahara Desert. I didn't need millions and millions of dollars. I didn't even need a miracle species of tree that I could plant out, and it was um, bulletproof, uh, resisting drought and goats and even people. Everything that you needed for restoring that landscape was literally at your feet because I knew that there were millions of these bushes strewn across that barren landscape. And I, I call this the underground forest. So if you cut a tree down, for most species, it's not the end of the tree's life. You have 30 to 50% of the mass of the tree underground. This root system with access to moisture and nutrients and stored sugars. And it's like this switched on V8 engine. It's idling and idling and idling, but it's not in gear. Because every year, that regrowth, those shoots that I saw, they're slashed, they're burnt, they're browsed by livestock, they're plowed over. It's never given the opportunity to regrow into a tree. And so everything changed. The battle wasn't technology or, or finance. The battle was mindsets. What was it in people's beliefs about trees, in their negative attitudes, in their destructive practices? What is it? that's turned them against the very thing that they need 
to help them survive and thrive. And if I could win that battle between the ears, beliefs, attitudes, and then practices, then everything would move quickly because literally the, this, the, what you needed was at your feet. Millions and millions of these stumps. And, and, and so what, what is FMNR, pharma-managed natural regeneration? It, it's actually not new. It's not like um, brilliant Tony come up with a brand new idea. A across continents, including Africa, including Europe, and across the centuries, people have practiced this in one form or another. In England, you call it coppicing. And uh, uh, in, in the old days, people would manage, they'd cut the tree and they would manage the regrowth and keep selling may, maybe firewood, maybe stakes, and maybe bigger trees from this regrowth. And so what it is, it is in, in uh, terms of what we did in Niger, of all these bushes, we'll select the ones that we want to regrow. We're not going to bring back a full forest. We still need to grow food. So select the ones that we want. Within each stump, there's this profusion of regrowth, maybe 20, 30 stems from the one stump. That's too much competition for light, for water, for nutrients, even for space. Let's cull all of the, the small ones, the broken ones, the crooked ones, and select the most robust, the tallest, the strongest, and we'll select maybe five. Perhaps in the end, we only want one, but if we only leave one from the start, as soon as there's a need, <laughs> that, that one is going to get cut, or a wandering goat or a strong wind could break it. But if you have five, then we can have a rotation, and every year, encourage the farmer to just cut one from each bush, allow a replacement. The next year, come back, cut a second one, but it'll be that much bigger, allow a replacement. In the third year, cut the next one, which again will be so much bigger. So it, it's a kind of rotation system. It's the, the technical term for this is coppicing. And in, in terms of what, what farmers did, there was no fixed way. I, I didn't say you must grow this species or this many trees and prune it this way. It's very deliberately farmer managed so that they, they're engaged, they're motivated to shape this thing, FMNR, to meet their particular needs. It's, it's, it's quite extraordinary to think that moment when you realized that actually I'm surrounded by trees. I just can't <laughs> see them and they've been there the whole time. It, it's quite a significant discovery when you consider you've been trying to nurture these very delicate saplings. And actually, on the other hand, these very established roots of trees, these this they're fully established and actually they're so determined to grow at this point that they could be considered a weed and they're a pest and they're being slashed back each year. So it really kind of flips things completely. Um, could you give us a bit of a sort of comparison and how significant this is in terms of if we wanted to regenerate land with saplings versus regenerating through the farmer management of the trees? What what would this look like in terms of cost and the time to establish and the level of success of, of the species? How how do those two compare? Yeah, yeah. so I, I would actually say it was revolutionary. <laughs> and um, 
so cost estimates vary from country to country and, and how you do it and so on. But roughly between $400 to one extreme case I read of, $8,000 per hectare. So this is very costly. When you consider that the Sahel region is about 300 million hectares, it, it would cost several trillion dollars to reforest that area using these methods. And as I mentioned earlier, the success rate is very, very low. 20% um, if you're lucky because of the harsh conditions. And um, initially, at least, j just say with that 20%, how long does it take? It might take five to eight years before that's a reasonably decent sized tree that's not so vulnerable to goats and drought and camels and so on. So it takes a long time. It's very costly and it has a high failure rate. In that study that I mentioned, it took um, uh, $160 million to, and they restored 20,000 hectares. And I can guarantee you the day that the last dollar was spent, that was the last tree that went into the ground. Now compare that to the next 20 years following the discovery, or I'd like to say rediscovery of FMNR, it spread at a rate of a quarter of a million hectares per year for 20 years, mostly without my knowledge, because it spread from farmer to farmer at no cost to the project. And if you needed a value, well, what was their labor worth, their voluntary labor, because they did this for themselves, in, in the order of $18 per hectare. What were project costs? So the cost of where we did work and our promotion, our visiting, our exchange visits and so on. T typical project costs are in the order of $50 per hectare. So compare 50 with the lower figure of 400. And then a success rate close to 100%, especially if you're working from these very resilient, uh, hardy tree stumps. Even if they get cut down, they're still there. There's a capacity to come back again. And so over the following 20 years, 200 million trees were regenerated across 5 million hectares of farmland without planting a single tree. And, and much of that without even my knowledge. I, I knew something was happening. I certainly knew in the immediate district that I worked in, it was spectacular, but I had no perception of what was happening beyond that or very little perception. It's, it is extraordinary. I mean, you you called it revolutionary, and it's really the word is not enough, is it? When you when you really see the contrast, and um, I assume a sapling, like you say, is going to take uh, eight years before it's it's strong, as you've, you've just described. The tree that is um, already there, already established as its roots. In what sort of time period do you start to see that having? Um, an impact as, as as a tree again? Well, even before you would consider it a tree. So within the first year, even in those very dry conditions, and we, we were only getting in a good year, 350 millimetres of rain in a four-month period. So eight months total dry, heat, wind, desiccation, four months, if you're lucky, 350 millimetres of rain. And yet... In, in many instances, those trees could grow a, a meter and a half, in, the, in better cases, even two meters tall. But you know, maybe a, a meter and a half would be more typical. So, so what? Well, 
um, there's for, for the people, there's a small amount of fuel wood that they're harvesting um, from the pruning. And this is their energy source. They don't have gas. They don't have electricity. Women were walking for up to four hours to collect fuel wood every second day. When there was none in some of these landscapes, no trees left, what do they use? Well, straw and manure. So e even goat pellets. So very degrading kind of work, sweeping up goat pellets to cook your meal on, removing that covering, the, the crop residue, the straw from the fields that should be protected by it, and, and using that. Um, there's a slight reduction in the wind speed right from that first year. If you leave enough of these bushes to regrow, you're, you're cutting the wind, slight impact on temperature. These trees are dropping organic matter, leaf litter into the soil. So soil fertility is slightly increased. Organic matter is like a sponge. And what little rain falls is going to be held for longer. There's going to be less evaporation. There's going to be more available for the crop. The trees themselves, we didn't know this at the time, but many of the species are acting like a bio pump. They have deep roots. They draw water from deep in the soil profile. And at nighttime, the shallow roots are leaking some of that moisture within reach of the crop roots. And I've got startling photos where in a drought year, away from the base of the tree, there's total desiccation. The closer you get to the tree, it looks like it must have been a normal year. It's not just surviving. It looks like it's thriving because of this improved microclimate. Little bit of shade, uh, windbreak, bio-irrigation, and then crop protection. As soon as you bring trees back into the landscape, you're creating habitat for insect-eating birds, spiders, lizards, and so on. And these are farmers, very low incomes. They can't afford pesticides, and often pesticides aren't even available. And the ones that are available, they're so toxic, they shouldn't be buying them. So here's a level of protection. Uh, and, and you know, need I go on? It's, it's breathing life. It's uh, rehydrating the landscape. It's, it's, it's making conditions for life more am amenable. <laughs> yeah, the impact's just, it, it's one of those situations that's turning it entirely on its head where the destruction may mean less resilience each year and more worry for the farmers and less food supplied. The, the trees are, it sounds like within that first year already making this impact that then must be speeding up and, and, keep continually perpetually supporting the environment in every different um layer and every layer of um the climate and the pest control and um i suppose then the people themselves they're they're living a life with far less um burden and of worry and uncertainty yes so so in the first year it's a slight benefit but with each year that you do this and the trees get better, the benefits increase. And what I've witnessed, I've been very privileged to revisit Niger in recent years. And, you know, that description that I gave, this downward spiral of degradation and poverty and despair, when I go back, people are built on that foundation. You've got this basic tree cover. And now I see an upward spiral of, restoration, regeneration, 
relative prosperity. That now they're not driving Mercedes, but there's relative prosperity and hope the restoration of hope and so they built on that foundation and it's enabled them now to diversify the types of crops and animals they're raising because there's more more fertility better temperatures and, and moisture and so on and as soon as you add diversity you're much more resilient droughts will still come wind storms heavy rain periods but if you have different types of crops, they won't all be affected the same way. And maybe your grain crop will fail, but you can harvest some fuel wood or honey or wild fruit or something else. And so when the resilience is there, people are much more confident to invest. They'll send their kids to school. They will make agricultural improvements and, and so on. So it's, it's this, this escalating improvement. It's, it's very exciting. Yeah, it must be so incredibly heartening for you to go back and see, um, you can describe it as this changed environment and changed attitude towards life um, oh, it's, it, and experience. It, it, it's lovely. I, I pinch myself. Am I, am I being paid to do this? Because And the people are so happy when you go back. Um, they just want to show you. They want to tell you. There's clapping and dancing and song it's powerful <laughs> so wonderful but of course this was never going to be overnight and yes there's benefits in that first year but the actual traction to get this moving and get people to believe in it as you did right from the start was not an overnight um communication so could you maybe just explain what some of the reservations were and why that was challenging to get people to believe in this sure so so any culture including ourselves as human beings we resist change and often with a vengeance even when we know a better way if, if we're smokers it's hard to give up if we have habits wasting time it's hard to to give up so it's not unique to developing countries and then in their context, imagine being brought up and you're taught that a good farmer is a clean farmer, meaning they, they clear the scrub, they burn crop residues and so on. That was considered good practice. And to, to stray from that, you would uh, earn scorn and ridicule and be labelled lazy and so on. So enormous peer pressure to conform that I, I was confronting with. I was challenging that, saying you should be a dirty farmer, leave, leave some trees. Then there were beliefs, and I, I touched on that, beliefs that trees compete with crops, beliefs that, you know, one old man said to me, look, if I plant this tree, and this was in the previous period, then maybe my children will benefit, perhaps my grandchildren, but I never will. Trees grow too slowly, which in, in certainly in the case of FM and R, it's just not true. And, and then they were also very co cognizant of the fact that a lot of these trees are going to get stolen. There, there are no binding rules and regulations or consequences for theft. So there are a lot of reasons why they resisted. So how, how did we do it? Uh, in 1983, there was a terrible drought. And we brought good out of a very, very terrible situation by initiating a Food for Work program. And the, the government had actually stipulated you can't just give out food willy-nilly 
and create dependency, they have to work for it. And and this was a good thing. It gave us, <laughs> maybe it's a bad term, but it gave us a captive audience for the best part of a year. People needed the food. Eventually, we were able to obtain that food. And one of the work requirements that we made was that um, uh, people leave 40 trees. They regenerate 40 trees per hectare on their land. And then each month we would count those trees and then there would be a grain distribution. And then the next month repeat it and, and so on. And you can imagine how cruel is Tony, how mean forcing us to grow trees on our valuable farmland when we, we know, we know that we won't get such a good crop yield. Well, fortunately that year the rains were excellent. And across the district, there were bumper crops. And it really was good. And so when the Food for Work program finished, we continued the messaging. Yes, yes, we gave you something to do this, but it's something we should be doing anyway for yourselves, for your children, for your future. 75% of the trees got cut out. Finish with that, Mrs. Tony. We'll get on with our lives. But 25%, and the, the, the technical term in, in extension work is critical mass, 25% of the population said, well, it didn't actually do any harm. Look at all the grain we harvested. And did you notice that slightly less wind, slightly greater fertility, our wives had fuel wood close at hand, wild foods that we hadn't seen since we were children are coming back. And some of these trees are good for livestock fodder and so on. Let's take this thing another year and see where it takes us. And, and they did. And still no harm, more good. Let's take it another year and so on. And so from that critical mass, this idea spread organically from farmer to farmer, eventually across the country. So it was very, very powerful. These days, I, I don't wait around for a disaster. We, we try to use logic. And what I've learned is that every parent in every culture desires a better future for their children than the current reality. And I ask, if we continue business as usual, destroying the environment, what will life be like for your children? And, and they know it will only get worse. And that's the start of our journey. Would you come on a journey of discovery with us? And we'll work this out together if we can repair the damage. It's, it's something that has worked beautifully once they can see that it, it's actually very quick to benefit them. And in that period where they're not necessarily getting benefit, it, it's at least washing away the doubt that this is actually going to cause harm and have a negative impact. Because, of course, these trees... So for the most part, you're regenerating on land that is also farmed. So this is trying to find the balance. And, of course... You've, you've talked about the benefits of the trees and what they provide. There's food and wild foods and fodder, as well as all of the support. So the crops themselves, was that um, because they were providing the microclimate, the crops were noticeably improved? Yes. So pe people didn't have access to fertilizer for the most part. There were those terrible wind speeds, which caused a, a late planting, later and later planting. Um, the, the temperatures and, and so on. So typically farmers could double their crop yield without accessing fertilizer or irrigation or improved seed. And that 5 million hectares that I mentioned, it's been estimated 
that every year without subsidy or fertilizer or inputs, Nigerian farmers are growing an additional 500,000 tons of grain, enough to feed two and a half million people, just by virtue of the fact that they are now working with nature instead of fighting it and, and always destroying it. So it's, it's very, very powerful. And, and yeah, initially, at least, we, we weren't creating um, tree huggers, environmentalists in that, in that extremist sense. These were pragmatic uh, redneck farmers that needed to make a living. But over time, there's some beautiful things happen where they, they get this deeper appreciation for the environment. Yeah, that's wonderful. And I suppose the, the success and that organic spreading of it is just because the results were so clear and spoke for themselves. Oh, yes, yes. Um, farmers learned from each other and saw, saw the impact. It, it's very hard to, to ignore it. If your crop shriveled up in the drought and your neighbours gave a, a reasonable yield, you're going to start asking questions. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, you're going to want a part of that. <laughs> yes. And and we also do do this in, in communal forested land. So you, you take the principles and you apply that across the different types of landscapes. But you, you're right, most of it, where, where we work, most of it's happening on agricultural land. Yeah, and I suppose there's no... Is it something that, in terms of these stumps, obviously they've got to already be pre-existing. Has that ever... That there's just more than you need of them is that the case well in in many many cases because particularly in developing countries there's been a, a lack of mechanization and they haven't thoroughly removed all of these stumps H however in some places you go to the high population density countries rwanda and similar places there's been intensive cultivation of the land extraction of the even the stumps for for fuel wood and charcoal and so on and and so what what to do but even there i found there are still some and even in the absence of stumps there's this deposit of seeds so hardy long lasting seeds often they've got a hard coat that can can it can stay in the ground viable for decades and what's happening is that they get cultivated they get burnt uh every year and once farmers are aware that they are germinating that they are there and they they want to realize the benefits they they can cultivate around them they can prevent fires they can manage their livestock differently so that the these seedlings are getting a chance to to grow yeah so it's changing the attitude that they they need nurturing rather than attacking, Ch I suppose. Ch changing the attitude, yes. And when you when you add up, if you change enough attitudes across a district, FMNR is not just coppicing, it's not just tree management, it's actually landscape management. So enough people change the way they use fire and animals and cultivation and, and the way they harvest woody biomass. Enough people doing that, you can restore landscapes. So I, I talk of three levels of FMNR. There's the mindset change that gets you to do it in the first place. There's the technical aspect of coppicing, selection, pruning, so on. But this is a landscape restoration approach when you apply it across communities, across landscapes. It's, it's so... Um... 
it just seems like the potential of it is so wonderful and the ability for it to spread and be such a simple and accessible technology it, it anybody can like you said it's putting it in the hands of the farmers themselves to to take care and take that ownership for for how they want to to manage that and that's wonderful um it it gives such a new dimension and a new opportunity and it, it kind of I suppose it brings me to the question that within your own childhood you were reading about people past that had an ambition to restore degraded lands or to work on reforestation and then you've spent your career doing the same and is this something that you feel has given you the hope that this doesn't have to continue generation after generation um, as being the same story where they're we're, we're searching for a, a solution um, but really we're, we're, we're dealing with the same problem one generation after another. Do you feel hopeful that we, we have the means to change that? Oh, most definitely. So there's a whole slew of uh, nature-based solutions, regenerative agriculture practices, of which FMNR is, is, is one of them. And we, we know about them. We see the results. The missing link is uh, the will, <laughs> the political will, the wide-scale awareness that's needed. But I, I have every confidence based on Niger, of all places, edge of the Sahara Desert, one of the poorest countries in the world, a movement initiated and run by the, the most risk-averse poverty-stricken and often illiterate people in the world who ran with this, if, if they can do that under those conditions, what about us with our education and our resources and, and so on? We, we have everything that we need to, to significantly, substantially address biodiversity loss, desertification, deforestation and, and all of this. Yeah. I think that, that if we put every ingredient together, like you say, they're all they're all sort of the puzzle pieces that we need. And we even have technology today where we can communicate and spread the awareness far quicker than would have been possible um, decades ago. Yeah, yeah. Back then, they, they didn't even have mobile phones or anything. It just spread from farmer to farmer without our knowledge. So today... What can we do? So many people got radios, they've got phones, even TVs in some villages. So there's so much we can do. <laughs> yes, fantastic. And something that I'd like to just touch on, it's very notable um, that along your journey, you've taken some brave and bold decisions. And a lot of the time it has been through your faith and your asking of God for um assistance and for direction and I think that it's very it, it gives a, a really warm and demonstrates the power of faith um your journey I think would have looked very different without it there may have been times where you did just say I'm going home and uh, I think it it's something that not everybody is going to ever take on the same beliefs with regards to religion. But I do wonder if there's something about the power of connection um, that it inspires within you, that idea that to think beyond yourself and outside of this, the personal needs to that of whether it is a God that we connect with or simply the people around us in a better way and communities and the natural world. And 
Um, I wonder if this is a huge problem that we face today. If you think of all the destruction in the world, that can only be a symptom, really, of feeling disconnected. Because how could you allow yourself to to not take responsibility if you were connected to to those situations and issues? It's a bit like you would look after your family and your neighbours in a way that you might mistreat a stranger. And um, so if we sort of put that into the context, do you feel, I think you've already perhaps touched on this, the idea of getting um, involved with practices like um, restoring the trees and the land, do you feel that that helps to nurture that connection? Oh, definitely. So so you're absolutely correct. For me personally, my faith has been a source of strength and inspiration and encouragement to persevere. But in general, I, I think as, as a species, we're very disconnected. And I, I think of my lovely grandchildren, I have eight of them. We take them to the zoo and they're spellbound. It's amazing, it's awesome. And you can't take them there often enough. Somehow when we become responsible adults, it's for the most of us, it's beaten out of us we've lost this awe and wonder. And there's a lovely thing happened to me in Tanzania. A farmer uh, took me by the hand. We walked across his field and there's this pathetic burnt out tree stump on the edge of his farm. It was hollow. You can see it like bowl shaped and the big, big shoot growing out the side of it. And he said, Mr. Tony, this tree used to be my enemy. And I tried so hard to destroy it. I, I lit a fire on it every year to get that stump down. And then I learned about the value of trees through FMNR. And now I'm so ashamed. And uh, this tree has become my friend. <laughs> and it, it clicked. I'm not a tree man. That's not the main thing that I do. I'm in the business of turning enemies of trees, enemies of nature into friends. And if I look at it through that lens, I'm in the business of reconnecting people with what, as children, it's it's innate, it's natural. We have that connection that we grow out of, sadly. So, and then wonderful things happen. There's a lovely lady in Senegal. We were doing a, a project evaluation. And uh, when they said, what's been the impact of this tree work? And she said, sometimes, I get a bit choked up, Sometimes the changes I see pushes me to go into my farm just to appreciate the trees and the environment. And if you think of the context that I just shared, what I saw when I went to Niger in the first place, this, this is a nonsensical statement. The farm isn't a place to go to appreciate the trees and the environment. It's hunger that pushes you. It's need for fuel wood. And it's a place of uh, sweat and tears and disappointment. But she said, no, the beauty, the restoration <laughs> pushes me. And I, I think she'd reconnected. <laughs> Absolutely. No, that's it's so beautiful. It really is going from one extreme to the other burning of the tree. And this is my enemy. I mean, it's that that story in itself, it shows the power of restoring the roots as opposed to the saplings, because that tree was not going to give in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and just think of that that lady and that guy. Now, I, I don't have to say anything. No, these that's, guys. That's the power, isn't it? It's the yeah. people are there 
taking their own motivation and their own energy into yeah and yeah. You, you can't shut them up to use a religious term they'd become evangelical <laughs> <laughs> no it, it's it's so um it must be so beautiful for you to be able to look back and then see where things are now and know that you've you've made such a fantastic difference because you have I, I, I assume you've, you've suffered and um, struggled through some fairly upsetting times in order to, to take this journey to a place where it was feeling hopeful again. And you've reached, um, you've, you've spread that hope. And I think that when we look at nature-based solutions, whatever they are, actually they tend to be, um, in my experience, very simple to implement and it's actually that hope within the people who have the ability to take those steps it's the motivation and the hope that's missing not the actual knowledge or solution and I think that that is perhaps where the the difference can come at this time we can we can use technology to share hope and um, that, that in itself is is something that perhaps we have new. <laughs> um, it's it's very powerful. Pe- people are beaten down. Uh, a, a survey was done in in Kenya, and the, the farmers were asked, "Where are you on the social ladder?" <laughs> and they said, "We're not even on the first rung. Our government doesn't know us, doesn't care about us. We're nothing. We're nobody." And um, What's it like to be a parent? You, you can't feed your kids adequately, clothe them decently, send them to school. It's soul-destroying. It, it eats you. There is no hope. You've tried everything. It fails. A drought kills your crop. Theft. All, all these things are happening. It's hopeless. And then here's this simple, simple thing, literally at your feet. It's now within your means to create the future that you want for yourself and your children and as much as i enjoy going back and seeing the restoration of landscapes the the biggest change that i see is the restoration of hope and people with hope are very very different beings to people who are hopeless and and they will send their kids to school they will invest in improvements they'll have a, a, a different expansive view of the world instead of this contractive I've got to take it now, otherwise someone else will. <laughs> yeah, it's um, yeah, that that is transformational, um, very much transformational. And <laughs> you you've come to this place where you now, and I suppose it's been actually quite a long time that you've worked for World Vision, which is your current role. Um, uh, over how- twenty years. Over 20, 20 years, years okay fair, yeah. fair time how how does that add to the perspective of um the, the restoration of land and then how that ties in with other objectives that they've got and and a, yeah, a so broader view generally world vision is much better known for child sponsorship it's you know our main focus is child well-being and, and also for emergency relief so we're, we're there for Ukrainian refugees were there earthquakes and so on and and that's sort of the the well-known brand of world vision what we do but I've argued over the years children don't live in a bubble everything that happens in the environment affects them and if children in, in order to have well-being if they need food and water and clean air and a lovely a lovely environment to grow up in for their physical and mental spiritual health 
then in those landscapes that were treed once before, we need to put trees back in there to make them function again. And so everything that I do is totally supportive of everything that World Vision stands for. It increases farmers' resilience and incomes and food security and their ability to support their children. <laughs> yes. So it's, it's, it's very lovely because it's kind of taking a, a holistic view of looking after all aspects of our life. And that's where it then ties together, I suppose, and the, the results occur. And uh, it's... Yeah, it's a it's a fabulous journey that you've been on. You've described yourself a couple of times, and I think you said the farmers also called you crazy. Um, but I don't. I think that if if that is true, then we need to celebrate crazy. Um, but I wouldn't necessarily use that word. It's something that we need. We need people that do things that bit differently and and have that strength to to have a, a vision and go for it. Because what you've achieved is fantastic. It's it's really wonderful. Yeah, so in terms of world vision or whether it be um, something separate to that, in, in what ways can people learn about um, regeneration and the projects that you work on and how can people get involved and help? Thank you. So I, I think the first thing is to be informed. And we, we've created a lovely website and I'll, I'll give you the link, but it's fmnrhub.com.au. So there's lots of great stories. There's even a, a whole manual that you can read there. I think it's downloadable too. So lots and lots of information. Um, I, I'll also put in a plug for my book. I'm, I'm not making any money of this, any royalties I'm putting towards global land restoration. So um, the forest underground, hope for a... Um, <laughs> hope for a planet in crisis. <laughs> Don't know the title of my own book. Um, yes, be, be informed. If you're a praying person, pray. In my experience, God answers sincere prayer. If you're a giving person, give. And there's so much good. You know, a lot of people think, well, the money never gets there. I, I wouldn't be doing this work all these decades if I believed that. It is effective. It does get there. It makes a difference. And on that FMNR Hub website, there's a donate button that you can give to, and that money will go towards global land restoration. And and then if you're a, you are gifted in such a way that you can support this work through your skills and so on, take a look at the World Vision website in your country in the vacancies section. There may well be something that you can make a significant contribution to. And, and even beyond World Vision, there are many organizations doing this kind of work. Yeah, fantastic. And this is, um, if, if they go through the donation process on the hub, would that support projects all around the world? Yes. So um, for the most part to this point, we've used that to, it, it's enabled me to be proactive in, in advocating and traveling and teaching and, and taking the word out. Now, there's still other other things that we need to do in terms of improving our ability to monitor the spread of FMNR, improving communications and so on. But if people want to support a particular project, they'll be able to indicate that. And, and um, at the moment, we're piloting scale-up movements, FMNR scale-up movements in five countries, India, Ethiopia, Kenya, 
and Zambia, and I, I think the, the fifth one is Uganda. So there will be more specificity of, of, of that on, on the hub in the future, and people have a better ability to choose what they give to. Fantastic, yeah. It's, it sounds um, well, well put together to have that information. I think people like that to be able to see how the, um, the impacts and what's going on. Um, and yeah, fantastic. Well, look, Tony, thank you so much. It's been a wonderful pleasure to speak to you. It's such an inspirational story, really, really very inspirational and very powerful stuff. And so thank you for spending the time and sharing it with us. And uh, if there's anything at all that you'd like to add, then then please say. Thank you, Helen. It's been a great pleasure talking to you too. Um, maybe if I could add that as I've traveled around the world and spoken to many audiences, I, I think a lot of particularly young people, they're quite despairing about the future and they feel it's it's already hopeless to uh, tackle climate change. And I, I would say, um, you know, hope doesn't just happen, doesn't fall out of the sky. It's something that you create. And if the poorest people in the world under extremely harsh conditions can reverse their situation, what, what about us? So do whatever it is that you can within your capacity, even if it's as simple as turning off the light switch when you leave the room, do it. But to be honest with ourselves, we're all capable of much, much more than that. Just just do it. Follow your heart. Do something. <laughs> and, and, you know, if it's unclear to you what the next step is, it, it will always become clearer once you take the first step. From that vantage point, you'll be able to see further and, and the next step will become clearer. Fantastic. Well, thank you and best of luck with all of it. Thank you. Thank you. And, and with your work too. And thank you for listening to this episode of We Are Carbon. Next time, we'll be joined by Dan Horter, co-founder of GaiaNet, which describes itself as a network of networks. Dan brings us a fresh perspective on how positive change is being implemented into societies across the globe, sharing a vast knowledge around the range of solutions being developed, along with his experience in supporting organisations in changing their hierarchy for greater productivity and success. New episodes will now be added every other Tuesday, so don't forget to subscribe to keep up to date. And remember to check the description if you'd like to assist me with some guidance on my new initiative. So let's keep figuring this all out together. <laughs>